Welcome to Unlock Your Mindset podcast with me, Steve Rawlinson. Get ready to open the door to the world of business, entrepreneurship, and the art of achieving remarkable success. We'll focus on emotional, intellectual, social, and adversity, and how each of these traits are crucial to unlocking your growth mindset. The journey to success starts here, so let's go. On this episode, I'm joined by founder and CEO of Moja Group, Sophie Milligan. Mojo worked with entrepreneurs and senior executives to amplify their personal profiles and become known authorities in their industries. Multi-award-winning businesswoman, proud mum Sophie, is also chair at SmartWorks Newcastle, a podcaster, a best-selling author, and she was also recently awarded an MBE in 2023 New Year Honours. Welcome to the show, Sophie. Thank you for having me. Firstly, congratulations on getting your MBE this week. Thank you. How did it feel, meeting the Royals? It was pretty cool, to be fair. It was a really special day, and I felt so grateful to be able to share it with my family. You know, my parents came along, my brother was there. I've got a brother that lives in Ascot, so it's literally down the road for him. And my daughter got a few days off school to, to come down as well, so it was a nice family day out. You're the small percentage of people who have walked through the halls of Windsor Castle and met someone from the royal family, I bet. So, obviously, Unlock Your Mindset is a podcast focused on... Basically, what makes someone successful, where they come from, what adversities they faced, and just kind of really get a sense of feeling about what makes Sophie Milliken Sophie Milliken and how you've achieved the things that you've achieved. Obviously, I've done my research and saw that you started your career at John Lewis. I did. You were there for quite some time and then broke away and set up on your own. Let me ask you something. When you were a young girl, young lady... Did you think that you would be sitting here 30 years later with an MBE and some of the achievements that you've achieved in your career? Definitely not. Definitely not. I think, well, I think most people that own businesses probably don't set out to own a business. Mm. I think some people do, and I think it's probably more common now because it's become quite sexy and attractive as a career choice. But I think, you know, when we were younger, it was a more traditional route. So you either, you know, you left school and you, you went and got a job or you went on to uni and then you got a job. Mm. And that's what I did. You know, I went to uni because that was expected that that's what I did. I wanted to be a fashion buyer, actually, when I went right. to uni and went off to uni in Leeds, realised that to be a fashion buyer, I had to move to London. And at that point, London was really scary to me, which I say now with a massive smile and a bit of a laugh because I did end up working and living in London for, for eight or nine years. And yeah, I, I instead decided to join the John Lewis Graduate Scheme and applied locally to Newcastle specifically so I could come home. Yeah, I did four or five years at Newcastle and then got sent off down to head office, never to return or not under sort of John Lewis anyway. So yeah. So just, just give the listeners, for those that don't know you, give us a brief outline of your career and some of the achievements that you're most proud of i mean getting onto the john lewis graduate scheme was pretty cool to be fair because they used to get thousands of applications and they only had a handful of places i think there were four spots that year for newcastle so that was actually really cool i got promoted within three months at john lewis so i was a section manager which is the first rung on the ladder i didn't really have a clue what i was doing if i'm honest i always had these massive teams of people that were mostly older than me that knew the products and services inside out so i felt like a bit of an imposter at times in in that 
role. But then I quickly realised that if you understood people and you gelled with people, that actually didn't matter what the department Mm -hmm. was. So my favourite department at Newcastle was the audio and TV department. And I could barely even turn any technology on. Like, I'm really not good with technology. But I loved working with the team. And, you know, my challenge there was, was around dealing with customers and understanding customers when they were perhaps a bit upset about something and they had a complaint. And I didn't actually need to know that much about the products, believe it or not, to be able to handle that situation. So, yeah, I did pretty much every department at Newcastle and then got the tap on the shoulder to say, right, if you want to get promoted, you really need to move. So I went on a six-month secondment down to the head office, which is in Victoria in London was working on the new branch project. So John Lewis was expanding a lot at that point. And I did new branch openings in Liverpool, Cambridge, uh, Leicester and Cardiff, I think. And really enjoyed that. But by that point, I'd been made permanent. I did a master's while I was at John Lewis. So I did that part time in the evenings and weekends. Got a merit for that. So that would be an achievement, a career achievement. Then fell into running the graduate recruitment department. At that point, it was one graduate scheme, one summer placement scheme. We were number 74 in the Times Top 100 graduate employers, which is a real barometer of graduate jobs. By the time I left five years later, left the business, we were number nine in the Times Top 100. We were winning all sorts of awards and we had about 15 graduate programs. So that was an achievement in itself. And then I set up the first business, SRS, to- totally by chance, to be honest. I'd- let's let's go, back and go, go back to John Lewis then. Yeah. So talk, t- tell the listeners what actually happened there. How did you end up leaving there? So I left John Lewis because they were going through a big restructure. They've had quite a few since then. Retail's quite a volatile industry to be in at the moment and has been for a few years. And by this point, I'd actually moved back to Newcastle. I'd got married, I'd had a baby, and I was commuting from Newcastle down to London Mm -hmm. just once a week, but it was quite intense. And I was doing a four-day week, but compressed hours in those four days. So I was tired. It was pretty stressful, to be honest. And then they were moving my department out to Bracknell. And my, not my boss, but my boss's boss said she wanted me in the office five days a week in Bracknell, which was a bit backwards for me. And I didn't want to do that. So even though the new job was actually a lot more money and I was on a good, really good wage by then. And I am motivated to a degree by money, not for necessarily materialistic things, but for freedom and security. So I did think about it. But like I say, I was married with a baby. I didn't, didn't want to leave northeast I didn't want to move back down there so I looked for a job in Newcastle I wanted to stay in that industry there were very very few jobs in that industry they were paying maybe a third of what I was on and that would be a good a good salary and I thought well I could take a bit of a step back but not that much of a step back how long would it have taken me to get back up to that salary so it then ended up being a chance conversation with a guy that was commuting down to HSBC from Leeds, so the same sort of setup. And he was saying, oh, I'm thinking about leaving the bank and setting up on my own. And he'd been there like 20 years. I'd done 12, 13 years at John Lewis. So it was just this totally chance conversation where we decided to set this business up and I look and this was the chap who you set SRS yeah yeah and I look back and it was a bit bonkers because we both had these really corporate careers on good money and we just jacked them in and did you was he like a seed investor or was he like no so he he was a business partner but he only stayed for a few years okay so he was great in the sense that he was very structured and very procedural and very you know steady around putting things in place i was a bit more out there around having sort of wacky ideas so you know a great example is three months in 
I'd seen on LinkedIn that James Kahn was doing his very first recruitment entrepreneur competition. So you're probably familiar with this. So he was offering 500 grand and mentoring from him. Did you apply to it? Yeah, so you didn't I, take it, did you? Well, let me tell you the story, oh. right? So so it was the first year that he was doing it, and I was like, hey, Simon, I've seen this on LinkedIn. We've got to go for it. It'll be so exciting because I love stuff like that. And he said, well, you put the application together and we'll see where we get. So I think he was just humouring me, to be honest. And I was like, right, I'm going to do this. So I put it all together. I went to see, because I'm a big fan of using networks when you need them so I went to the the guys that did our marketing when I was at John Lewis and said can you just have a look through this and make it look really fancy so I knew it was a good application I sent it in and literally a few days later I got an email from his PA saying right James wants to meet you next week or something I was like oh my god so then I created this big board because I would need to stand out so what we're going to create was the business already trading at this point it was only three months old so we had a couple of clients I mean we did have some good clients and in fact when I'd seen this advert I was sat in the shopping centre at Canary Wharf because we had a job with JP Morgan. Right. So I was on site there and that's where I saw it. So I created this big sort of mood board, vision boardy thing with like a path. I got a friend who's an artist to draw this path. And we had loads of photos of things that we'd already done in our careers and what gave us credibility and what we did. And then the path kind of forked off one way if we got the investment and went off the other way if we didn't. And this still ended up both being successful, so yeah. being, being positive. So we go down to his office in Mayfair, which was really Unbelievable cool. Unbelievable office, isn't it? It was very cool. And we went in and we were there with all the other finalists around this board table, which I was not expecting. Right. <laughs> Threw me a little bit. And we got, I don't know, three minutes to pitch to him. In front of the other finalists? In front of the others, okay. yeah. And we were the only business that wasn't a recruitment agency. So we were a consultancy and we were very niche around graduate recruitment and employability. And he really liked it. He really understood it. And and he summarised it back to us in a way that I was like, yeah, he gets this. And he was like, right, so you guys are basically experts in graduate recruitment. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we are. So that was a really positive experience. And we came out and I thought, I don't think we're going to get this because we're not the kind of business he wants. He wants a recruitment agency. And sure enough, we got an email a few days later. Oh, he really enjoyed meeting you, but it's, you know, it's not for him sort of thing. And... Yeah, that was fine because I, I think in yourself, hindsight... He, he probably did you. I think that. And, you know, I've seen some of the businesses that he's gone on to work with and they're not what we were offering. And actually, I'd have been back down in London a lot more than, you know, I have been since. And he'd have had that influence. But do you know what? We dined out on that story for about three years because it was cool and he was quite popular at that point. So, you know, that was a positive experience. Yeah. It was I, I went through the same thing. He offered me the money and I turned it down. He wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. I remember having an hour's conversation with him driving from Newcastle to Leeds and he was talking about gambling on horses and he was like, why would you go about and do it on yourself without backing a proven winner? And I was like, yeah, but you were in that position once on your own. Like, I don't feel like I need your investment or your support to push this forward. And in all fairness, the last time I met him, I know his daughters, he gave me a book from Brick Lane to Dragon's Den. Oh, yeah. And uh, he fucking signed it, man. He was like, oh, I've heard that you're a big fan. To Steve, all the best, James. And I was just like, mate, I don't think you're a celebrity. I was looking at you as a business partner. You just killed it. You know, they always say, never meet your people who you've got, like, you know, ambition or them people that you, like, you aspire to meet or, you know, meet your celebrity crush or Is anything Is he a bit like of a that. disappointment for you then? Um, I mean, look, the guy's done amazing in his career, but I just thought, what a dick move that was. <laughs> I, I Literally, I was just like, no, nah, I'm not interested. See you oh. later, mate. Um, yeah, so... But it's a positive experience. In the, I keep using that word, but it is because you get to practice pitching in quite high-pressure mm-hmm 
situation. And I mean, you're sitting in an amazing office in Mayfair. Exactly. And, and these are the things that, as we were talking about before, these things, they give you conviction and foundations for other things that might be when you're pitching for other business. You've met, you know, the guru of recruitment. Obviously, you're a, you're a consultancy, but, you know, pitching in that environment, it gives you that kind of persona of actually if I can do this then I can I can pitch in front of anybody doesn't it so you didn't get the uh, you didn't get the investment but you still nope. you had your model and you were like we no, did we did yeah we did I've still got that board somewhere and it's funny because there's a picture like we both have family pictures on it as well because I wanted to make it quite personal and then I got divorced about three or four months after we did that pitch. So mine's got like a rip. And this is still while, <laughs> the, this the is still, still quite, while the business is quite new, yeah? Yeah, we, we were, it was only three months old at that wow. point. So, so you're going yeah. through a divorce, you've had a baby, you've yeah. set up a business, yeah. a lot of adversity. What was, what was going through your mind Do you when know what? Was it was really shit at that point. But I am grateful for the order that that happened in because I think if I'd got divorced before I'd set the business up, I wouldn't have taken the risk because I'd have wanted to keep the high paid job. To be fair, we were always profitable and we were working out of our bedrooms at at the very beginning. So we were always making money, but it was tiny compared to obviously what I'd been on. So I'm glad it happened in that order because I don't think I would have taken that risk. But at the point where where I spoke from my ex-husband, the business was only about six or seven months old. Jess was two. So I've gone from, well, you know, a well-paid corporate job and got married, had the baby and all those sorts of things to go in, right, what the hell am I going to do? And because it wasn't long after that either as well. Maybe it was a year or so later that Simon started saying, well, I think I want to leave. So I obviously had that to come as well. But I was at that point where I had a decision to make, really. Do I go and get a job again that is better paid or do I go all in on the business? And that was the decision that I made to go all in because I knew I was going to be skimped for a while. I talk about this in my TEDx talk because I couldn't keep that house because I was self-employed. I had no books. It was when you had to show two or three years worth of books to a mortgage company. It's a bit more flexible now, I think, but at that point it wasn't. So I had to persuade my dad to go on the mortgage so I could keep the house. The mortgage at that point was £650 a month when I was married because my dad went on it and he's older. They reduced the term and it went up to like £1,200 a month, which then, you know, like 10 years ago, it was loads of money. I wasn't even earning that or maybe I was earning that, but that was it. I then had to put Jess into nursery four or five days a week, I think. That cost more than that as well. So it's all these costs. So I ended up borrowing 30 grand from my parents to see me through for a couple of years, really, to help me with finance. And I just put my head down and thought, I'm just going to stay really, really focused on this business. It's going to be shit for a couple of years we're not going to go away and have a nice holiday or anything it's going to be just actually just getting through things and it was quite a nasty divorce so you know we fought over lots of things we still fight now I haven't seen him for six months god knows where he is but you know it, it wasn't pleasant but work has always been actually a bit of a a comfort for me because I enjoy it and when I don't enjoy it that's the time that that you move on and but do how something did, so, different. So where do you, that, this is obviously all around the podcast in terms of unlocking your mindset and my concept around the EQ, SQ, AQ and IQ. And what I've noticed with the episodes that we've done is that adversity is the thing that kind of gets you through storms. And there's some people that can run into a storm and face it head on and just say, fuck it, this is happening. And there's other people that run away from it and they just can't deal with adversity. And you tend to find that successful people, entrepreneurs, be it in sport, be it in business, be it in any walk of life, they just have this natural ability to be able to deal with storms. Where do you think that comes from in your mindset? Like, 
if you go back to your childhood or go back to your teens, something must have happened that allows you to deal with adversity. Yeah, I've been asked this before, actually, and I, I don't know what it is because my family are dead normal, like super normal. You know, my parents met, got married, been married for, I don't know, 47 years or something now, still like each other, still yeah. hold hands, which is lush. And oh, then beautiful. It is nice. And then my brothers have got really normal jobs. One's a teacher, one's pretty high up in the NHS. They're married to lovely women and both have... Two kids, boy and a girl each, or one of them's on the way, but you know, just super, super normal. And like, I'm kind of the odd one out in all of those ways, in that I've taken a, an unusual career path compared to no one in my family's ever had a business that I'm aware of, and I'm the only one that got divorced. So I, I don't like know. The black sheep. Well, I mean, I think they like me. So what <laughs> was what, right, what was it like being at school? What were you like at school? I've dead average dead average I was in top set for everything but I was not the top of the top set I was kind of well I don't know where I sat but I, you know I got very average GCSEs I did crap in my A levels first time round and I came home and my dad was good I got I think I got two D's and an E which was which is shit it would be really shit now but then it was still shit and my dad said to me right you've not got your place at uni you can either go to I think I got offered a place through clearing where I had to go to the Carlisle campus of Northumbria Uni and I was like I don't really want to go there and um, he, he said well, you either go there and then you transfer to wherever you want to go after a year or you go back and you reset your A-levels in a year. So I said, right, I'll do that then. So I went to college and worked really hard for a year at college and got two Bs and a C, which then was actually really good. It would be average now or not very good now, but then it was really good. So I was buzzing when I got that because it felt like the first point that I was actually quite successful with my grades and then went off to Leeds, what used to be Leeds Mets, now Leeds Beckett, and did my degree, want to be the, the fashion buyer. But I've always been pretty average. So in your mind, do you think the people who can cope with adversity, do you think it's something that's taught, like, throughout your life where you just get used to dealing with shit or in your mind is it like you've just got that grit something about you where you no matter what gets thrown at you you can just deal with it I think it's both you know I think you need a bit of adversity a bit of things going wrong to be able to know how to deal with it when I was talking about the first business and we had that contract with JP Morgan the big part of that contract was doing screening for one of their programs one of their graduate programs and they criteria for people to even apply was AAB I think at A level to even apply for their program and I remember looking at these applications and they were all you know top class students going to the best universities around the world because it was a global program and we were rejecting them and I'm thinking that's probably the first time those kids have ever sort of lost anything or been rejected at anything and it's because they're competing against people that have got all of that but have been able to you know articulate their examples or their experiences better whereas for me because I'd always done a very average at school and just scraped through things I think I was used to that and I was always kind of quite scrappy with things and looking for the next opportunity because I was just getting through things so maybe it's that and then I think there is something around being quite pragmatic. When something crap happens, I'll reflect for a bit, probably get upset if it's worth getting upset over, and then think, right, what am I going to do? Who am I going to speak to that can help me with this? 
where do I go for support and how am I going to deal with it? And I come up with a plan in my head and then go and do it. So you've built this business and at the same time, you're doing a, a management buyout from the person who you've set the business up with. You're getting divorced. You've got a young child. I mean, you know, I've been in all them situations. It's not easy. But the business became successful. Yeah, I think actually him leaving was the catalyst because he didn't feel as passionately about the business as I did. And he was doing the sales side because for me, traveling up and down the country was a real challenge as a single parent to a two-year-old. So I was kind of managing the upside. We did have a few associates that were delivering the work at that point and we had some office space but it was quite small and he was out doing the sales so then when he actually left I had to go out and do all the sales but I was totally in love with that business so I would go out and I'd be speaking really passionately and enthusiastically about what we did and we literally went from the point where he left he left at the end of our financial year which was in the end of April and in that six weeks after he left we had nothing in the books because of the way the contracts work and I got like 200 grand worth of business in those first six weeks which was quite a bit for us at that point and then it just snowballed from there and I was really out there and visible just you know going to everything I could and being really scrappy with getting sales and it just went it just went nuts we got a place on the scale up northeast program here in Newcastle that gave me access to some training that was helpful and useful I made more contacts here locally because we were operating nationally and I didn't know anyone in business really in Newcastle because we weren't doing that much locally so I got you know a bit more out there here I made friends that were really supportive so I had a really strong tribe around me at that point whereas before all my mates worked at like the council or you know like had dead normal local jobs so they didn't really understand things in in the way that I needed them to when what I were your to drivers offload. like what because that business became really successful you had it for nine years yeah um was it as long as that eight uh, nine yeah, years yeah yeah well I sold it in 2019 so I had it for six years but stayed on for, yeah. for a couple of years yeah and in terms of your your why and your drivers So you get it to the point where you're going to exit the business, which obviously every entrepreneur strives for that kind of CV recognition to be able to say built, scaled and exited a business. The exit process was that all right or did it go go as planned? As you well know, it wasn't. Uh, So... I'd never planned to sell that business. I'd never set out to sell it. It was an accidental sale, I guess, in in some ways, in that I'd become really well-known in that little industry. Everyone knows each other. I'm still still really good friends with a lot of people that work within graduate recruitment and the universities in particular. And I got approached by a couple of guys that were based in Manchester that had a jobs board business who'd had a lot of investment from a few very big Mm -hmm. investors. And they approached me saying, we love what you do. We'd love to do some collaboration on events. And I thought, oh, great. Yeah, what a great opportunity. So we did a few events together and I really enjoyed it. And then one of these two guys kept coming to see me in Newcastle all the time. And he was like, I think we should merge the businesses. And I was like, what? And I said, well, what would that look like? And he said, well, we would give you a load of money and you'll come on board and we'll grow this group and we'll dominate graduate recruitment. And I was like, oh, that sounds a bit more interesting. So although he talked about it as a merger, it wasn't a merger. He was buying my business and we went through the due diligence and the wholesale process and it took ages it took nearly two years to go through that and I think in hindsight I was stalling a little bit because I knew it wasn't right Mm -hmm. and I think there's something I don't know if you feel the same there's something really powerful about gut instinct and and mine's never been wrong and even the week before I nearly pulled out the week before and 
you know, I should have. But I'm a big fan of not regretting things that you've done. So that there's lots of positives I would take out of it. But I sold it in September 2019. I got a load of cash, uh, minus a load of cash, which was one of the first challenges that I had with them, where I technically failed the net asset test, even though there was actually a lot more cash in the business than there should have been. And it was because we did our accounting differently. And oh, I nearly I nearly walked out at that point because I was like, you you guys are just screwing me over here because you know that I should be taking this money out, actually, if, yeah. if, if anything else. And they said, well, you know, just keep your eye on the prize. You know, this is just a short-term thing. And, you know, we need to keep the investors happy. You're going to be making millions in a couple of years. So just just keep with it, keep with it. And, and I thought, well, what choice do I have? So I just kept with it. But that was the first red flag, I guess. And then we hit COVID pretty quickly after that sale anyway, within sort of four months. That masked a lot of things because I was running the office in, in Newcastle. We had quite a big team at this point. We had, I think we had six or seven permanent staff, but we had about 50 associates. Okay. So we were quite decent sized. They were based in Manchester. We bought a business that was in Sheffield and we had a London office as well. So it was with this building of the group. And th- like I say, the pandemic masked a lot of stuff because I didn't see them or speak to them. And we were all in panic mode when the pandemic yeah, hit. Yeah, of course. I, can I mean, imagine. the jobs board just totally died to death. My, my side of the business carried that group for the first year of the pandemic because what we did, with help from them, to be fair, because they had a load of developers, we created this online assessment software that meant that we could change all of our events because at this point, the bulk of my business was running events for students like mock assessment centers in football stadiums so we would have like four five hundred students rock up at st james's park or etihad or wherever it was and go through this mock assessment and you moved it all online moved it all online and we did it really fast and it meant that i was then able to save the next job say look we can move it online and then we created a case study out of it that i then took to all the other universities and said right we can move all of this are you still up for it and they were all in panic mode because they had to move all their classes online so they actually loved it so we ended up having a record year because so many people bought it so it worked well in hindsight you know we wouldn't have been able to move that fast i don't think if we hadn't have had their developers so you've got to look at these things in the best way that you can so that all happened we're doing really well I was earning like hundreds of thousands of pounds of bonuses because we were smashing all the targets and stuff but they were all in options so so then it got to the point where I had in my paperwork that and it was a real you know I've got email trails and everything about this around me being able to take up a group directorship of the business whatever I wanted and I was going to take it from day one and they said well you know you need to understand all the liabilities that we've got because we've got a lot of debt from taking on all this investment so I thought oh great they're trying to protect me because they said whenever you say you want it you can have it and it was in all this paper blah 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 and then sort of long story short I started falling out with them a bit more because they were doing things that I didn't really agree with the way they were treating some of the clients I thought "Mm, I'm not sure about that a few things I'd seen with the staff so I I felt like our values weren't aligning I was starting to get really annoyed I would go into these management meetings with the other MDs because we bought another two big businesses at that point and I would just be like the naughty child almost challenging the main guy that that I'd sold it to to say what's going on I mean the restructured are kind of organizational structure to make this one guy the one that I really fell out with CEO and then gave us all these like random titles so I was chief strategy officer and they just gave it to me for the group and I was like well should I not be involved in the conversation that created these roles and then the the CEO guy who'd made his business partner the COO he hadn't even been involved in these conversations so I was always challenging saying why is 
Joe not in this conversation? Why am I not in this conversation? You're just dictating to us. Who who says you're the CEO or the investors? Right, well, why are we not at that table? It was just really bizarre. So all these things were happening. They brought this CFO in. We'd originally all been involved in the recruitment for a CFO and then we hadn't taken someone on and then this other person just appeared. So it was all these things and I was like, no, I'm not comfortable with this. You're, you're running this business and you're just giving us these duff titles yeah. and it's just bollocks basically. So it got to the point where I'd asked to take up my formal role because I felt like it would give me a bit more control and I was told, yeah, it's fine, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. But because of this pandemic going on, they just kept fobbing me off every time I was asking them about it. And then the final straw was when I saw that this CFO that they'd brought in, who was an absolute nightmare, like, oh, she was just the most awful person I think I've ever met in business. And there's probably, you know, less than a handful of people where I could say they're truly awful. One would be the CEO, one would be this new CFO who's since left. That's probably it, actually. Like, I, I generally like people, but this CFO was just awful. And they put her on the board of my business, which obviously I was still on the board of, and the group, and they didn't tell me, and they didn't wow. put, and I'd been asking for it for six months or whatever at this point, and I just went ballistic. I like, I was like, do you want me to leave? And, and what did they say? No, 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 no. Right, well, why didn't you tell me? Because I knew you'd get angry. Right, well, where, where are your balls? Did like, you resign? So I went and got legal advice because I had so much money tied up. I had so much options. I had options as part of the sale and options that had accrued in bonuses. So I had, I had a lot a lot tied up at that point the ones that were part of the sale had vested over a three-year line and I'd hit year two so I waited till I hit year two I then paid quite a lot of money to vest them I naively thought they would offer to buy them from me and I'd have a bit more cash to take out and they didn't they said oh we'll we'll let you uh we'll let you keep them so that you can benefit from the future value of them and I thought you get because they knew that I didn't want to be involved yeah, with yeah, them yeah. but yeah I took legal advice and I, I can't even remember what the details were in the end but I left in the January of 2022 and I'm still in touch with quite a lot of people it's only one guy that I don't actually like because the CFO then left because I think she realized that it was a bit of a farce herself and she'd come from very senior sort of corporate roles she went and it's just the CEO that's that's still there because then he got rid of his own business partner, which is interesting. He sounds like an interesting character. He does. Yeah. And, and all these things obviously help you to get to the position that you're in now with another amazing business, fast-growing business. Obviously, Mojo doing huge things for local businesses as well as businesses in and around the UK, winning awards yeah. and whatnot. And so all of the things that you've been through, and all of the things that you've faced, there's a lot of adversity that's coming out there in terms of doing an exit and having to deal with... Dickheads. Yeah, dickheads. (laughs) And then having to deal with investors, having to deal with an ex-husband, having to deal with like being a full-time single mom and then growing businesses and whatnot. These are all things that, that I believe help build strong characters to get you to the point where you are collecting an MBE, you're building an amazing business. If you could... Go back to Sophie Milliken at 10 years old in her bedroom. I asked the other guests this and tap her on the shoulder. What's the advice that you're going to give her? Ooh, that's a great question. I think it would be to take risks earlier. Okay. Because I think I'm a real risk taker now, like massively a risk taker. But I think that I shied away from that for a long time. And although I made the best of 
challenging situations I was always really cautious for a long long time and I think it's only when the shit really hits the fan and your bags against the wall where, where you kind of have to yeah do you take calculated risks or do you take risks where you just think fuck it that sounds like an amazing opportunity let's just go yeah I think it's more that but I think that that's linked to gut instinct which yeah. is always right so is it a calculated risk? Well, it wouldn't be if you were looking at science, but if you were going with your gut, then I think it is. Do you know, when I talk about unlocking the mindset, and obviously I'm doing this master's in psychology and business, and I've obviously come around this emotional intelligence, social adversity, and intellectual. All of the things that you've achieved throughout your career, I mean, obviously you're one of the most intelligent people. I know you've done a master's, you've done a degree, you've done bloody... You're, you're doing, doing a PhD. A, you're doing a PhD candidate. I am the stupidest person all in the class. All of these <laughs> things, it doesn't matter, you're yeah. still doing it at yeah. the end of the day. And all of these things, that's like your level of IQ. So you just, you get it, yeah? You're an intelligent woman and you're pushing for greatness. Then you've got that ability to deal with adversity. doesn't matter how hard I get hit, it's how hard can I get hit, get up and carry on going. And then... You do get people, you build long-lasting relationships, and your level of EQ is probably higher than most people. And I believe that most entrepreneurs do have a high level of EQ. It's like that old saying where I didn't go to Harvard, but the people I work for did. Mm. You know, I'd never been to university or even finished school until I started Samuel Knight, and now I'm sitting here and I'm doing a bloody master's. And then you've got that social element where you can build long-lasting relationships with friends, with peers, and you're really easy to get on with. In terms of, like, I know your mind works similar to mine. What are your thoughts on what creates that success in terms of your mind? What do you believe that secret ingredient is? I think it's probably who you surround yourself with. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, isn't there something, there's some sort of research or maybe it's just some guru talking about... I think this, I've seen it. I know is it the say. seven people that you spend the most time with or something? And I think, although I wouldn't sit down and think who those seven people are, I think there is something around people fueling your own energy. So, like, if, if we go for a drink, mm-hmm. then... I'm always like bouncing home thinking, Same oh, we've had me. this yeah. great conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's so much energy and it'll spark ideas. And I really love those and value those conversations. And, you know, I've got a handful of really good friends where I'll have exactly the same thing. And I think that there's definitely something around taking inspiration from other people who've been there and done mm-hmm. that and get it. Yeah. I think there's No, a I agree. I mean, you know, it, it's like that famous saying, isn't it? If you want to know your future, show me the people that you surround yourself with here and now. In terms of like your biggest tip for listeners, let's say there's a young lady sitting there, just graduated and not really sure what she wants to do with a career but or, or, or a male, and they're sitting thinking, I want to be somebody, like I've just got this burning desire to be successful. They can see, but they don't really know that path. What tips are you giving them? I think I probably would actually suggest that there may be st- start with something quite traditional and get a job because if you're getting a job with a big business or actually even a small business now might might be better these days because small businesses have got more going on and can give you more responsibility early on but I think getting into an organization in something that you're interested in so if it's business go and work with a business or if it's the public sector go and work for 
someone in the public sector but getting that good grounding where you're going to meet people and you're going to network and you're enthusiastic and you can take on lots of different things that's the key to it you know when I started at John Lewis they used to always say to us you need to raise your profile more they used to say that to us all the time as graduates and they meant that if you took on more responsibility and you said yes to all the projects then you would come into contact with more senior people in the yeah. business and you'd get known and that was so true. And I'm a big believer in saying yes to stuff, even when you don't know what you're doing and just working it out afterwards. But it's then the snowball effect of you say yes to doing one thing and then something else really interesting happens off the back of it. So I think you've just got to get started and get some experience and really network well. Do you think entrepreneurs are born or do you think they're made? I think there's something in people that needs nurturing and then made. So when I look back to when I was a kid, I did do quite a lot of enterprising activities, which I didn't really think of at the time. But my, so in my parents' street... Selling things in your street and yeah. things like that. It's funny, isn't it? Because most people who I deal with in my network... They're all quite similar. Like it's I was the funny. same. I used to sell my brother's toys on the streets yeah, and then we, get we shouted out for taking the next door neighbour's kids' money and then yeah. like give the toys back. Yeah, we did that. And and my parents still live next door to our original neighbours. Like no one ever leaves that street. And one of my best friends lived next door. And her parents used to say to me that I was going to be a businesswoman, but they used to say it as if it was a really bad thing. And I would go home and tell my mum and dad, oh, Mary next door says I'm going to be a businesswoman. They were like, oh, yeah, we don't think she means that in a good way. And she was obviously right and she spotted something but I would have like Kate out selling stuff out of our garages and we had this like the the most ridiculous scheme that I had was doing tattoos on neighbours' hands and we just, just draw on them and charge them. <laughs> yeah 50 pence for a tattoo we would just literally draw on the hand and biro and the humour does bless them which was kind of them but you've got this like I say everybody I've met they've been or done something entrepreneurial that they don't necessarily think is entrepreneurial in the at the start of the young life have you ever been see a life coach or a therapist who's like talked to you about why you would do things like that no, I had some therapy when I was getting divorced just yeah. to kind of deal with it because I was like the first one in my group and I literally just didn't know yeah, but you still dealt what with to it. do. Yeah, I still dealt with it. But that but that was helpful. I remember seeing this person and uh, I'll not name her, but um, she basically said to me, there's a funny trait with entrepreneurs where it's they have this weird addiction to money growing up, but they don't necessarily understand that it's an addiction to money and it's because there's something missing and only you can analyse what that was. But she was trying to analyse me and um, it was like a life coach that I went to see because there was like loads and loads of things going on in my life and I remember talking to me about my childhood and I was just like, listen, I'm not from a, you know, one of these normal families. I'm from a council family. And she was like, tell me about your childhood. And I started telling her and she was like, oh, it seems like you had this strange addiction to money. Money doesn't motivate me now at 41. It's like, obviously, I want nice things and I want to be able to give my daughter and my son, you know, a, a nice future and that. But it's not a main motivator for me. But she said when I was a child, you had this strange addiction to money and that's why I was on the street selling things and things yeah. like that. Do you think that maybe you I think I was exactly like that, yeah. yeah. And do you know it's what? Funny, I can it? see it in my daughter because she's always, always hustling for money for various things and she's so and clever. negotiating with you. Oh, my things. God, she is a mean negotiator. Like, I think she's... I see a lot more of that in her than I would reflect back and think I had. So God knows what she's going to do, but she's an expert negotiator. But it is, I mean, you sit and think about what you know now and what your daughter sees. So 
think of the chain of events. So your parents, they've never owned a business. Obviously, you know, lovely upbringing, lovely family, dad and mum, good jobs and whatnot. But imagine what your daughter is learning from you and what she's going to be like when she's like 25, 30 years old. I honestly think she could take over the world. Like the experiences, because this is where adversity can be actually a superpower because for me, I had to take her to pretty much everything because... I had nowhere for it to go. Like, you know, my parents do help me with with childcare, but I've got nobody else. So I used to just get asked to stuff and I'd say, can Jess come? And they would always say yes. And she'd been, like, she's been to some amazing places. You know, she came to Birmingham when I did my TEDx talk and she got to run around and, you know, play with the cameras and they really looked after her there. I got to go to the House of Commons for an event earlier this year and she got special permission to come to that. She's been to Windsor Castle. She's been to Windsor Castle. Like, I don't think she genuinely realised. I mean, she's only just turned, she's 11, you know, so she's still young. But I don't think she realises how cool these are. I don't think you realise the foundations that you're giving your daughter for the future, though. Like, obviously, I'm the same full-time single parent, and I look at my son. Lily obviously doesn't see me setting up businesses because the business is already set up, but I remember launching Samway Night USA in my car, and Joel was listening to that, and he was, like, just watching me. I think he was, like, nine years old, ten years old. And now you fast forward, like, the years later, and he sees Samuel Knight USA from me setting up in my car outside That's my wild. house because I couldn't get signal in my house to now doing 10 million in sales in the USA and him going, and him sitting there going, oh, my God, I, I remember seeing that. I remember, like, watching you set that business up and it's me amazing. sitting there and thinking, like, he's only 19 now, but imagine how much he knows compared to what I knew when yeah. I was 19. I think you know? because we didn't have any of that, like, we can totally see that, and yeah. maybe they don't but probably will realize when they're a bit older and I think I'm always really conscious that I don't want to put too much onto Jess and I don't want to influence what she does too much I want her to see what's going on and absorb it but make her own choices so she's really great at like STEM subjects which are always my worst subjects which I find fascinating and I think I hope maybe she does go into something to do with STEM so I'm really careful to not put any ideas in her head about what she should do although about six months ago she did say to me I would really like to have a business and I, I was talking to her Encourage like, you to, what would it be and you know encourage you to uh, look you could we could sit and talk about this all day long but you know <laughs> I think my concept of the EQSQAQIQ you are the perfect candidate for it I think in terms of unlocking that successful mind you inspire so many people you build long-lasting relationships you're genuinely a nice person you're intelligent you've got this level of being able to just deal with shit i think this is a box ticked for me in terms of unlocking your mindset so (laughs) where can listeners connect with you what can people expect if they linked in with you so linkedin is my biggest platform so i'm pretty active on there i'm on the other platforms as well another great place to, to check me out is with my podcast too beyond the bio which you'll find on all major podcast platforms thank you very much for coming on the show sophie Thank you. All the best. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to Unlock Your Mindset with me, Steve Olson.